Hello, it's Friday the 26th of November. I'm Jim White, sitting in for the holidaying Andrew Pearce, who, as we speak, is in the midst of deadlifting the weight of his own car. And this is The Andrew Pearce Show, coming direct from the Daily Mail newsroom. Overnight has come news of a new Covid variant in South Africa. How worried should we be? Mind, if it does come, there is news also of an anti-Covid nasal spray under trial. Will we soon all be spraying against the virus? Plus, here's a question. Is your cat a psychopath? Apparently, most of our moggies are. Flights from South Africa and four other neighbouring countries into Britain have been banned after a new Covid variant emerged in the Johannesburg region. UK Transport Secretary Grant Shapps said the government was taking a safety-first approach and acting quickly to slow down its entry into Britain. The variant, however, might already be in the UK, experts say, although the current signs are encouraging. They warn it will likely spread to other countries because it is so transmissible. South Africa's infection rate spiked 93% in a day yesterday amid fears the strain is driving a new surge. Local scientists say it has likely spread to all the country's nine provinces, but there is yet to be hospitalisation surge in its epicentre of Johannesburg. So what is this new variant and how alarming is it? Joining me to answer those questions is Dr Lawrence Young, virologist and professor of molecular oncology at Warwick Medical School. Dr Young, what, what's different about this variant? Well, the, the thing that really stands out is it's so mutated. That is, if we look at the genome of this variant, it has many, many more changes, twice the number of changes we saw in the Delta variant. So it's the most heavily changed variant of coronavirus that we've seen to date. It's a clever little thing, this coronavirus, isn't it? It's constantly mutating. Why is that? Well, it's just a consequence of it spreading. The virus changes all the time. And in any of us who sadly get infected, the virus will generate variants. And then these variants are selected if they are more infectious or if they're able to dodge round the body's immune system. And that's what we're seeing. So the more people that are infected, the more likely it is that a, a variant will be generated. I mean, is this the future, an endless succession of new variants cropping up in different parts of the world? Well, I think as long as the virus continues to spread and we have a very varied vaccine uptake in different parts of the world, remember that only something like 24% of folk in South Africa are fully vaccinated, then you'll have this problem. What it highlights, I think, is the need to control the pandemic at the global level as well as locally, and that it's in all our interest to support the rollout of vaccines across the world. So vaccines are the way out of this. We hope that even with this variant, full vaccination will protect you from getting severe disease, but we need more people to get vaccinated to stop the spread and to stop new variants from being generated. When you say that, we hope that the current vaccinations will stop this. Uh, how, how high is your hope? I mean, do we well, know that the vaccinations we've had will prevent us catching this one? No, no we, don't, we don't. And, and of course, what we're doing here is wildly speculating. That's why I think we've got to be very careful not to frighten people. We've looked at this at the genetic level. We can see changes that we've seen in some other variants um, that give increased infectiousness and the ability to evade immune system responses to, to vaccination.
but we don't know that that's the case for this for this virus. So there's a frantic amount of work going on at the moment, particularly in South Africa, to check this out. But from everything we've learned about variants so far in the pandemic, it's very likely that current vaccination will offer some level of protection. We can't say that it will give total protection from symptomatic disease. We don't know yet. But the likelihood is that vaccination, indeed those of us who are boosted, will have very, very high levels of protection. We just have to wait and see. But the important thing is to stop it spreading. And one way to do that is to limit it coming into the country with people returning from South Africa. Yeah, but we've completely failed to keep out previous variants. I mean, do you think a travel ban will work this time? I don't think you can ever keep out variants. I think what you can do is you can slow things down. So this is about restricting and delaying the arrival of the variant into the UK. It's not about stopping it. Once it's out there, it's already out there. We've already seen cases reported in Hong Kong, Israel, and just in the last few hours, a case confirmed in Belgium. You can't stop these very infectious viruses from spreading. It's likely to be with us already. What we've got to do is just contain it. So it's really important that we keep an eye on what's going on with the variant, that we keep testing individuals as much as we possibly can, and that where we find cases, those individuals and their contacts are isolating. And for us as individuals, what advice do you give us? What should we be doing? I think the most important thing is to make sure that you're fully vaccinated, that if you're eligible to get a booster jab, you get on and get that booster jab. And I think also just to be a little bit cautious in in the way we go about our business. We know there's a big debate going on in this country and elsewhere about other restrictions and about the wearing of face masks. But I would just encourage people just to be a bit more cautious, to to be careful, wear face masks if you're indoors in poorly ventilated spaces with lots of other people, and just be a bit careful. What we need to do is to make sure we don't end up in a situation uh, where we have to enforce you know, restrictions and, and the impacts on all our lives and disrupts and ruins our Christmas. Very, very good advice. My thanks to uh, Dr Lawrence Young there of Warwick Medical School. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. Nearly a thousand more alcoholics and drug addicts died while receiving treatment during the first year of the pandemic than would normally be expected, official figures show. The Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, OHID, which published the data, admitted face-to-face treatment took a hit during the Covid crisis and that is likely to be one of the factors behind the rise. 3,726 people died in England while receiving treatment for drug and alcohol problems in the year to March 2021, which is up from 2,929 the previous year and five times higher than 2005's figure. Half of the deaths were opiate addicts and 27% were alcoholics. The highest mortality rates were in the northeast and northwest of England. Let's hear from uh, Jenna Virapen, the senior therapist at UK Addiction Treatment Group, to understand why this might have happened. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us. OHID said that much of the reason for the increase was the inability, because of COVID restrictions, to conduct face-to-face care. Uh, What is it about face-to-face care that really helps prevent the kind of deaths that we've seen this past year? 
Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's not a coincidence that it's been the, the pandemic and a lot of services have stopped that face-to-face contact. And, and what it is, is that it's a really um, lonely illness and actually just connecting with people allows um, people a safe space um, to connect with another human being and be able to share their experience. Um, and it's really empowering um, and important because they can't often turn to their families or loved ones. They've got to a point where they need that professional help. So uh, this is things like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, you can't have group meetings. Is is that what it is, uh, uh, as well as individual therapy? Yeah, I think, you know, that yes, everyone, we've had to adapt and, it, and it's had to become online. And a lot of the fellowship meetings like AA and that resorted to online. But there is something between a computer screen that just stops that connection. And for, for anyone suffering with addiction, human contact is really, really important to just let them know that they're not alone and this is, you know, it, that it can be okay. It's, it's absolutely, as you say, vital. So is face-to-face care now back up to speed or are there still restrictions because of the pandemic? No, I, I think it's, it's really disheartening, actually, um, that a lot of services are still limited um, and they're not doing that face-to-face care or those interventions that are really important, especially group work for, for anyone suffering with addiction. Um, you know, we provide critical care interventions. Um, and unfortunately, I think a lot of funding has been put on pause, um, you know, and, and that's just really sad to kind of see because it's such an important area. Like you said, there's been over 3,000 more deaths, and this is after people have reached out to a service for some help. Um, they're just not getting it. We've heard a lot uh, about how the pandemic has affected individuals' um, mental health. Are you worried that the that things are going to be exacerbated by the pandemic and lockdown and so on? Yeah, I mean, for us and, and for our service, we, you know, in UK, we've definitely seen, seen a rise with people's mental health um, alongside their addiction, you know, just because it's been such an isolating period. Um, and addiction itself is such an isolating illness. Um, you know, people have just become more into themselves. It, it's been it's allowed the behaviour to increase because they're isolated, um, and and we have seen a rise in anxiety um, and depression um, alongside people, and also a lot of OCD behaviours as well. Because just trying to control something when everything else in their life is out of control at the moment. That that's a that's a really good point. So, what what changes do you think we need to make to be able to tackle these issues? Uh, I mean, alongside the challenges that COVID already provides. Of course, I think you know it's really important that we're lobbying the government to to really reintroduce ring fence protected budgets for substance misuse treatment and prevention. You know, this can't be an area that we just let go by the side. Um, you know, regardless of the stigma around addiction, it, it is a chronic illness and it will take lives as we've seen. And each one of those lives, that's the person. It's someone's mother, their father, their child, their sibling, you know. Um, and it's about not putting that restriction on human life. Well, my thanks there for our insights to Gina Virapen of the UK Addiction Treatment Group.
visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much, much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or Andrew himself at ToryBoyPierce. Now, here's some good news. A nasal spray for COVID-19 prevention is entering clinical trials. Sources indicate that the product is being steered by the ITC Life Sciences and Technology Centre in Bangalore and it has the potential to be effective in preventing infection as well as transmission of COVID-19. Internal trials have also found it to be effective against other viruses like the common cold. It's intended to be cheap as well. Suggestions are... It will retail at no more than £9 for a bottle. Uh, With me to discuss this potentially groundbreaking development is Dr Richard Stanton, reader in virology at Cardiff University, who is leading the research. Dr Stanton, how does the nasal spray work against viruses like COVID and the common cold? Essentially, it forms a extra barrier um, in your nose. So we all know that your your nose has lots of mucus that protects your cells from the virus. But sometimes the virus can get through that mucus and cause infection. And so these um, sprays that are uh, coming to the market at the moment um, are um, intended to form an extra barrier layer across uh, that mucus to beef up the ability of the mucus to stop the virus getting through and infecting your cells. So it's a preventative thing. It's a bit like those uh, hay fever sprays that you take before you go out into the long grass in June. It's a very, very similar idea. And and these these same sprays have been shown to prevent pollen getting through them as well to try and limit the amount of hay fever you're exposed to as well. So it's about uh, potentially stopping you being as infected as easily by stopping the virus getting in. But potentially as well, they may also have some impact by stopping the virus coming out. So if you're already infected and you have put some of this nasal spray in your nose, then it might mean that you are less likely to produce as much virus and therefore you're less likely to infect other people as well. Uh, We've just been talking about a potential new variant emerging from South Africa. Are you going to have to update this regularly as the variants of COVID change or will it just work on all of them? But, but one of the potentially good things with these kinds of products is that it doesn't matter what the variant looks like. Um, they work across variants and they work across different viruses because it's purely a physical barrier, which is just make, sort of effectively thickening up the mucus in your nose and um, try and make it capture those viruses and stop those viruses getting through more readily. So they don't need to be changed as different variants come along. And, and how do you think this might change the trajectory of the pandemic? Uh, it's really hard to know at the moment. It's very important that we, we point out that at the, mo- at the moment we only tested these things in the laboratory. And obviously the next phase then is to go on um, and use these products in people to look at how effectively they might stop you becoming infected or how easily they might stop you infecting other people. So at the moment, we don't know exactly how effective they're going to be in people. What we do know is that they're very effective in the lab and therefore it's, um, we, we need to go on now and do these trials in people to see how effective they are in the real world. Now, uh, as I said, I think I think the, the, the expected retail would be about £9. So why is it so cheap to produce? Because presumably the, uh, the, the pharmaceutical company wants to make a bit of profit on that. <laughs> I, I think that the, the product that they use in these, um, uh, the, these uh, nasal sprays, the one, the one that uh, we were looking at was um, a product that's been very well used for a very long time. It's used in um, food additives, it's used in drug manufacture. So these are well-established um, products that have been around for a very long time. And so um, I, I suspect it's simply the case that we, we, we know how to make them very easily, very readily, and they've been made very cheaply. 
Now, there's also lots of conspiracy theories about um, tracking devices in our vaccines and, and uh, you know, Bill Gates trying to run the world by getting us all vaccinated. Are these nasal sprays, are they going to be the same? <laughs> well, they certainly are not microchips in them. Um, I, uh, it's really hard to know which kind of conspiracy theories are going to come out and what people will latch on to. Um, but there's certainly no risk from any of these nasal sprays. They are, they are made from products that are, are very well established and are very widely used. And so they've got an ex- certainly have an excellent safety profile. So as a final thought, uh, Dr. Stanton, when are they likely to be on the market? When are we going to start spraying ourselves to prevent us get, getting COVID? Well, I mean, certainly the, the, these products are already on the market. You can buy them, you can use them. Um, I think that the really important point, to, as, I said, as I made before, is that so far we only know for certain that they really work well in the lab. Um, and so I think you, know, you can buy them now, you can use them, they certainly won't hurt. Um, but we don't actually know for certain yet whether they will work in people to prevent infection and to prevent transmission. That's the next phase of the research, which is probably going to take a couple of years now to, to run those clinical trials and to see if there is real world benefit from them or not. The, the sad news is COVID's probably going to be around with us for a very, very long time. So two years is actually a pretty short period of time to wait, is it? Uh, yes, certainly. And, and of course, you know, flu is going to be around at that time as well. You know, we've had flu for many, many years. We're going to have flu for many years to come. Um, the COVID's going to be here for several, well, pretty forever, I suspect, in some form or another. Um, so um, I think um, things like this may well be needed for, for, for a very long time into the future, yes. Oh, my thanks there to Dr. Richard Stanton of Cardiff University about the new anti-COVID nasal spray. Joining me now direct from the Mail Sports Desk is Matt Gatwood, the Deputy Sports Editor of the Daily Mail. Matt, uh, we were saying earlier in the week that Manchester United were pretty clueless in pursuit of a standing manager, uh, but they've actually managed to make an appointment and it's quite a good one, isn't it? Tell us about it. Yeah, it's interesting. They're they're on the verge of appointing Ralph Rannick, who is the sort of um, has been described as the sort of godfather of German football, and he's been a uh, an inspiration for lots of different managers, from sort of Wenger uh, to Jurgen Klopp to Thomas Tuchel. So uh, they will all uh, speak very highly of this guy. He sort of invented the the thing I suppose become most famous under Jurgen Klopp is this thing called Gegenpressing, pressing, which is this high energy. Um, uh, um, tempo game where you press the opposition and win the ball back quickly and that's obviously something that Liverpool are exceptionally good at and that Klopp has implemented there so uh, whether he, so he, he's obviously being on the verge of being appointed the interim boss at Manchester United and he will obviously you would have thought try to implement that, uh, that style of football at Manchester United now it will be very interesting to see how he manages that with someone called Cristiano Ronaldo who is not in the first flush of youth uh, as you know, but he's obviously a brilliant player, and um, but is 37, so and isn't now obviously known for his high energy uh, pressing style. So how whether he how he can build the team around Ronaldo uh, in that style remains to be seen. Now he won't be in charge uh, at the weekend when Manchester United play Chelsea, uh, which is obviously a massive game for them. That will be Michael Carrick because of um, Rennick needs to be appointed and get work time, etc., etc. But we fully expect it to happen. And uh, I imagine his first game will be against Arsenal next Thursday night. So, yes, uh, interesting. And also interesting that he has been given the job on an interim basis till the end of the season and then a two-year role, uh, consultancy role. We, we think that's going to be the position. So he will stay at the club even when they appoint the, uh, the new manager in the summer. 
The thing is, though, uh, Matt, he's won a lot more adv- uh, admirers than he has actual trophies, hasn't he? Very I mean, true. does he think he'll actually win anything with United? I, well, I don't... It, yes, it, who knows? I mean, you're right. He's only won one German Cup. Uh, um, so his trophy cabinet is almost as empty as Maurizio Pochettino's, uh, who obviously is uh, one of the favourites to become the manager, the, full, the permanent manager, uh, next summer. So you're right, you know... Yeah, who knows? He could very well, you know, lead Manchester United to the FA Cup. Uh, I think the Champions League is going to be beyond them when you look at some of the quality of the opposition. And I think the league is probably going to be beyond them. But he could win a cup. He could win the FA Cup. Uh, Obviously, that remains to be seen. But it's an interesting appointment. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how he gets on. In Germany, he's known as the football professor. Now, the original football professor... Uh, there's an interesting little variation going on there, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he was known as the Professor, and obviously, um, obviously, Wenger was then subsequently known as Le Professeur. So yes, there's uh, there's more than one Professor in the uh, in the football world, obviously. And and uh, there's news, isn't there, that uh, Mikel Arteta is apparently looking to welcome uh, the original prop, or maybe not the secondary prop, uh, back to the Emirates. <laughs> Indeed, yes, very interesting as well. Yeah, that um, Arteta. I think it's a, it's interesting. So obviously, Wenger since he left has never been really welcome back to the club. That you know, they, he kind of felt he needed to make a clean break and stay away from the club. And I'm not sure, you know, Unai Emery, who was his um, successor, you know, would have welcomed him back. When you make a break, you kind of want to make a clean break if you're the new guy coming in. But Arteta obviously worked under Wenger, uh, played under Wenger, should I say? Uh, was made captain uh, by Wenger as well when he, in his playing days when he was there, uh, and obviously was very close to him. Uh, and you know, I suppose you could look at it two ways. It, it either shows that he's um, he's a bigger man and he's able to say, look, you know, I, I, why wouldn't I turn to someone with that much experience and get them involved if they if they want to be involved? Or you could look at it and say, well, you know, isn't he his own man? Why can't he make his own decisions? But I think, you know, personally. Why wouldn't you tap into someone with the experience and the knowledge of, of Arsene Wenger if you can? So uh, I think talks are an early stage and whether Wenger wants to do it or not remains to be seen. But I think it's a good idea by Arteta, uh, as I say, to tap into that knowledge. Tapping into knowledge, Matt, that's why we talk to you. Um, now, listen, uh, <laughs> Tim Payne, the Australian captain, uh, he was stripped of the captaincy but was expected to play in the forthcoming Ashes. And now apparently he's not. What's going on there? Yeah, he is taking an indefinite break from the game now um, after this revelation that came out last Friday uh, about his um, text messages, inappropriate text messages that he had sent to uh, a co-worker when he was, at Tas- when he was uh, with Tasmania. And overnight, last night, he's announced, yeah, as you say, we kind of thought, well, he would be in the running to beat, to, although he wouldn't be the captain. Uh, which has now been appointed, uh, Pat Cummins, the fast bowler, has now been appointed the captain. So we thought Payne wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be captain. We thought he would be in the team. Now he's taken an indefinite break. Now I know we like a bit of Aussie bashing, but it is a bit of a worry that he um, that he felt the need to uh, to take an indefinite break from the game. Uh, and it shows that obviously he's not mentally in a very good place, given all the uh, interest in his private life. So a little bit of a worry. As I say, Pat Cummins has been appointed the um, the new captain and his assistant is none other his his vice captain is none other than steve smith who of course was stripped of the captaincy for his role in sandpaper gate so he's almost back in charge and if pat cummings goes down with an injury or can't play all five tests 
uh, during the Ashes, then Steve Smith will be back in charge. As they say, what goes around comes around. Uh, Matt Catwood, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Here's a couple of questions for cat owners amongst you. Does your pet attack people and purr when it does? Does it torment its prey? Does it dominate neighbouring cats? In which case, apparently your moggy could be a psychopath. A new questionnaire for cat owners will enable them to ascertain if their pussy is a psycho. The Cat Try Plus protocol asks 42 questions of owners and the results of 2,042 surveys have just been published in the Journal of Research in Personality. Uh, joining me to discuss the findings is Antonella Marcicano, certified animal behaviourist and accredited by the Animal Behaviour and Training Council. Antonella, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, tormenting prey, fighting with neighbours, cats and, and, and meowing loudly, that, that sounds like standard moggy behaviour, doesn't it? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, it, it, it is for cats a little bit more wild, but it's definitely not a trait that you might want to have um, when you have a pet cat and that does it to you. Uh, I mean, this is a, a survey, but if you yeah. find that you tick all those boxes and you have in the household a feline psychopaths what can you do <laughs> so it, it 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 i think the survey is more to try to understand um the traits the personality traits that your cat has compared to the behaviors that he's showing uh, to help you to see what to do so for example if you have a cat that is more playful um and that is more uh independent like the the bengal uh you're going to have a cat that if you don't uh un entertain him uh, or entertain it, um, might be showing more aggressive signs to you, might be just attacking you, thinking that you're a prey, um, because it's bored. So that, that's, if, if that answers your question, not sure. Yeah, so, so, so it is possible to alter cat behaviour by the way you interact with them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there, there are things that you might not be able to do because it's, it's obviously species-specific, but there are certain behaviours that um, definitely... So, for instance, if the, the, the cat was to um, attack the owner, um, and that is when the, the owner is either, um, and I put in brackets, playing with the cat or handling the cat, those are behaviors that can be modified um, if the pet owner understands uh, why the cat is, is displaying those behaviors. And if you modify your behavior, uh, so human behavior, therefore you'll be able to, to modify your cat behavior, for sure. You're an animal behaviorist. I mean, one thing that I've been reading about is that during lockdown, a lot of us mm -hmm. spent a lot more time with our pets. We were around them much more. Yes. Is it going to be? Are they going to have kind of trauma when we all start going back to the office and spending less time with them? That's a great question because um, very recently there's been studies showing that cats can um, suffer from you know separation um, related problems, so that they they will suffer if they're not um, with their owner and left alone uh, in the house. As previously, uh, I'm a cat owner as well. I've got dogs and cats. And um, I know that cat owners think, oh, well, it, it, cat is easier because they're more independent and I can be out of, you know, out of the house for nine hours and the cat wouldn't care so much. Or if I go on holiday, I'll get somebody to just come and feed the cat. Um, and actually, not necessarily. Cats can be, you know, create a strong bond um, with their owner. And therefore, yes, they might suffer uh, when you leave them alone, for sure. Interesting. You've got cats and dogs. 
go, go oh, on. Right. Answer the answer. Answer the 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 question that has long been around. What's easier, yeah. a cat or a dog? <laughs> well. <laughs> That is, you know, again, a great question because a lot of people say, oh, my, my, you know, my dog is so needy. Um, and when I come home uh, after a long day, the first one that rushes down to say hello to me, it's my cat. My dogs are like, hey, hi. And, and probably my husband <laughs> is the last one and say hello. Um, but then my cat becomes very clingy. So it, I think it depends on the, on the, like every pet, it depends on the personality uh, of the human and what you are trying to to, to gain from a pet, obviously the, the dog will make you go out more often, um, will make you perhaps be more social, uh, it's um, easier to train in a way versus a cat, you know, it's, it's more in-house, um, it's, it's less high maintenance, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does make sense. I can answer, I love both, and I even <laughs> had ferrets before, so I'm probably oh, right. yeah, not, not the best person to ask what's best, but I love them all. It's uh, uh, final thought, Antonella, what, what behaviour are you most frequently asked about around pets? Mm. So, around pets or around cats? Ah, around cats. I think let's, let's specify cats. cats. Perfect. So around cats, the most common ones will be um, problems soiling the house. So when they pee and, and poo around the house, um, scratching stuff, um, so furniture or even you know, the, the owners, getting into a fight uh, with other cats. So that will be the, the main three behavior problems that we as a clinical animal behaviors will be contacted for. And is it getting worse? Not I wouldn't say not really. The, the issue that you have with cats, well, with dogs as well, is that behavior problems, a lot of them are problematic behaviors for owners. Um, so if we don't see them and we don't see them as behavior problems, uh, we don't tend to, to worry about it. So um, the one that I don't get is cats that are very clingy. So the ones that will suffer from separation anxiety, which I, I suspect those ones are getting worse, but we don't see them as often as you would um, read about dogs, for instance, because dogs obviously will vocalize and destroy the house and offer those behaviors that are obvious that your cat, your dog is stressed. Really interesting. Thanks so much. That was Antonella Marcicano, a certified clinical animal behaviorist. That's all we have time for for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. I'm Jim White, standing in for Andrew Pearce, and the man himself, more buff than Arnold Schwarzenegger, will be back on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend. Music